This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We have a special announcement for you today. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. And for a limited time only, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Slow Burn and Political Gab Fest. For the past quarter century, Slate podcasts have been covering all the major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our culture shows have debated if things are sexist, named the best summer songs, and explained the latest TikTok trends. If we've become a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash spectacular plus to keep us going for another 25 years. Again, we're giving you $25 off an annual membership through October 31st. So sign up now at slate.com slash spectacular plus. Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week, we'll be talking to Sylvia Sierra, a discourse analyst with a new book out that explores how some millennials reference different kinds of media, everything from movies and television to video games and memes, to build a shared sense of identity. And later, for our wordplay quiz, we'll be joined by two very special guests— Madison Malone-Kircher and Rachel Hampton, the hosts of ICYMI Slate's podcast about internet culture. So, Nicole, I was hoping you could help me figure out a bit of a linguistic puzzle. Uh, It's actually a puzzle about phonetics, which is your bread and butter. So last week, I was watching the Sunday morning talk shows, and on a couple of them, the guest was Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, We've heard a lot from Dr. Fauci over the past year and a half as the pandemic has rolled on, but I'm still kind of fascinated by his old-school Brooklyn accent. He certainly has the hallmarks of someone who came of age in New York City in the mid-20th century with a lot of the dialect features that we think of as kind of old New York. Yeah, definitely. And on the talk shows, Dr. Fauci had a lot to say about the latest data coming in about COVID vaccines. And I got a little distracted by the way he says the word data. I'm not talking about whether data is singular or plural, like a lot of medical and scientific types. Dr. Fauci treats data as a plural noun, which is fine, although I don't do that personally. It's fine if Dr. Fauci does that. I do. I'm with Fauci. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And also, I'm not talking about the vowel in the first syllable. Some people say data. Some people say data. Dr. Fauci tends to go with data. Something else struck me this time. Listen to this clip where Dr. Fauci is being interviewed by Martha Raddatz on the ABC show this week. But the data of boosting the J&J first dose with the J&J second dose 
is based on clinical data. So what's going to happen is that the FDA is going to look at all those data, look at the comparison, and make a determination of what they will authorize. Wow. You heard that, right? It wasn't just me? Yeah, it wasn't just you. <laughs> right. So like the first two times in that clip, he says data. He said, yeah. So he said data, then he says data again. And then the third time, it's data all of a sudden. So where did that R sound come from? Oh, okay. I know this one. <laughs> well, we know that New Yorkers historically have dropped their R's at the ends of syllables. And if you are a person that pronounces all of your R's in this context, then we would say that you are a rhotic speaker. But if you drop the R uh, when it comes after a vowel and it's not followed by another vowel in this context, you're non-rhotic. And it's worth noting that there's variation in what people do with R-type sounds that's common both cross-linguistically and within varieties of English. So in addition to seeing this non-rhotic pattern in New York, it's also common among some Southerners and African-Americans across regions, as well as most UK varieties. Right. So yeah, we have that non-rhotic action happening in different parts of the world. And uh, in Dr. Fauci's case, he was born in Brooklyn in 1940. So like many other New Yorkers of his generation, he came of age with that non-rhotic pronunciation, dropping the R's. But that phonetic feature started changing around the mid-20th century, right? Yeah, and now I get to tell you about one of my favorite sociolinguistic studies. It's a really famous sociolinguistic study by Bill LaBeouf uh, at Penn, uh, where I am, back in the 60s, where he went to three department stores, a high-end one uh, in New York, Saks Fifth Avenue, and a middle-class one, Macy's, and a working-class one that was called S. Klein. And he'd go up to the store workers and ask for something that he knew was on the fourth floor. And then he would listen for whether they said fourth floor, an erotic style, or fa fa in a non-rhotic style. I can't fourth even floor. do it because I'm super rhotic. <laughs> yeah. What is it, Ben? Fourth floor. Yeah, I can't, right? I'm very rhotic. <laughs> but he found that workers in the discount store had much higher rates of this non-roticity, this R-dropping, than in the middle class and upper class stores. LaBeouf was capturing a change in progress where the traditional non-rhotic New York accent was rapidly losing prestige uh, among white speakers and that this was patterning by social class at the time. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, when you listen to people from the New York area who have lived through that change where, you know, it used to be this non-rhotic accent was like the prestige accent, but then that all changed. It lost prestige. If you listen to people who lived through that, you can hear that they've mostly adapted to the rhotic style, but there are always hints of the old non-rhotic variety that they grew up with. They keep just kind of peeking out, let's say. I mean, that's certainly true of Dr. Fauci, if you just listen to him talk. He has R's in places we would expect a rhotic speaker to have them, but he also is still dropping them in some places, you know? I mean, even if he's talking about the Pfizer vaccine, very often he'll say, Pfizer. Pfizer. <laughs> yeah, individual speakers can show a lot of variability in situations like this based on a lot of factors, including formality, also what they're talking about and the linguistic context. So are there vowels, are there consonants, what's going on? And it gets more complicated with non-rhotic speakers because in certain contexts that R sound doesn't get dropped where you might expect it to be. So if the R is followed by a vowel, then the sound is uh, more likely to be preserved, and that's called a linking R. And in non-rhotic varieties, whether the speaker is from New York or Boston or the UK, an R sometimes gets inserted between vowels, and that's called an intrusive R. 
Right. Intrusive R. Yeah, that's like when uh, John Lennon's saying, I saw a film today. Oh, boy. That, you know, I saw a film, getting that R sound in the middle of the two vowels. And, of course, Boston-bred John F. Kennedy famously had that intrusive R. This would be something that JFK impersonators would often uh, try to capture. When uh, Kennedy talked about Cuba, for instance, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it would sound like Cuber if it was followed by a vowel. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. And Dr. Fauci definitely has that intrusive R, too. There's this new National Geographic documentary called Fauci, and I was watching the trailer for it, and he talks about the idea of discovery. I loved clinical medicine, the idea of discovery and having an impact on people. And when he was talking to Martha Raddatz, he added that intrusive R when he said, the timeline mother is... Well, the timeline, Martha, is that the, uh, the, the FDA will be looking at the data from Pfizer. But, uh, Nicole, in that first clip we played, Dr. Fauci said the FDA is going to look at all those data with that R sound, even though data wasn't followed by a vowel. So how did the R get in there? Well, you're right. That's not a context where we'd expect a non-rhotic speaker to insert an intrusive R But like we were saying, Dr. Fauci grew up non-rhotic and then adapted to a more rhotic style. So when that happens, sometimes speakers overshoot the mark, adding more R's than strictly necessary. And we would call that hyper-roticity. It's also a little bit complicated because the thing that comes next is an L. And L's, as far as consonant goes, are kind of vowel-like. So you could see a situation in which the L is a little bit vowel-y. So he's he's kind of overshooting it with the hyper-roticity, but not in a totally ridiculous environment. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, and it makes sense, because I think I've heard that hyper-roticity in other speakers of Dr. Fauci's generation who grew up in the New York area, like in Jersey City, where I live now. It's really fascinating how we can hear the evidence of a dialect change just in a single speaker's variability. And every generation makes its own mark by changing some dialect features and preserving others. After the break, we'll be talking about another kind of generational language pattern, the way some millennials stuff their speech full of references to old and new media. Stay tuned to hear our interview with Dr. Sylvia Sierra about her book, Millennials Talking Media. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. Our guest today is Dr. Sylvia Sierra, a discourse analyst and professor at Syracuse University. Her new book is called Millennials Talking Media, Creating Intertextual Identities in Everyday Conversation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sierra. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us and congratulations on the new book. Thank you. 
I had a chance to look at it, and it's really interesting. It's an ethnographic study, I guess you could say, and it focuses on how a group of millennial friends use language with each other. Could you tell us a bit about the folks you studied and why they're especially interesting linguistically? Sure. So it's really just a bunch of my friends that I was hanging out with in grad school. A lot of it is actually uh, my partner's housemates. They were kind of the central group. He lived in kind of this typical, almost uh, big bang theory living situation where he was living with a bunch of other millennials um, in an expensive part of the country where that was the really only feasible way to um, pay rent. So a lot of them make up the study. And then there's some other friend groups, some other grad students and people who aren't grad students. So these are just the people I really, you know, had access to people I was hanging out with a lot and who were willing to let me record. And Sort of later after I wrote my initial study, I realized, wait, they're all millennials. So this could actually be a study of how millennials use media. And in the book, you're especially interested in how this group of friends makes media references. Uh, What do you think these references can tell us about language in general? And do you think this type of media reference is specific to this group? Or could we observe similar patterns in society more broadly? That's a great question. I definitely think it goes much broader than the millennials that I studied. I think this is something that everyone does. And I think quoting media really ties to some very fundamental human social processes. So the ways that we like to share knowledge, we like to uh, feel like we're part of the in-group and that we have seen the same media, that we can reference it fluidly in conversation. And it's also a way that helps us construct our social identities. So when we're referencing the same media, it just speaks to being part of that in-group and building that shared identity. In the case of my book, it's the shared identity as millennials who have played a lot of the same video games, seen the same movies, seen the same memes online. But it can definitely, I think, apply to anyone and everyone. I was just going to say, in in your book, it's mostly millennials except for one member of Generation X makes an appearance and she doesn't get a reference that the millennials are making to a particular song. Uh, (laughs) But I would say as a member of Generation X that, you know, I I certainly can think of similar cohorts in my generation who would constantly be making pop culture references to movies and songs and so forth, even though those references obviously might be a little older, perhaps, than the ones that millennials are making. It's interesting because the group is fairly diverse in terms of ethnicity and, you know, there's some gender variation in there too, but there's ways in which they're more similar. And I think that creates a sort of way in which they can share things. So for example, like I think I'm of a similar age to most of your participants and I was reading the book and I was like, I don't know about any of this stuff. So it's some of it is also sort of the subcultures that they belong to, right? If you don't play video games and it's also, you know, they're, they're very highly educated, the racial landscape, although they are themselves kind of more diverse, they seem to play in sort of mainstream kind of references as opposed to ones that, you know, if you had a group that was predominantly black or predominantly uh, Latinx or Asian, it might be a little bit different, I think. So we don't want to say that like everybody's going to have the same kind of references, but in as much as these folks have stuff in common, they build on that in their conversations. Is that sort of what's going on? Totally. Yeah. And, you know, it started out with an interest in video game references specifically. So that group, the main group in the study, they are unique in that they were huge video game players. So that's definitely unique to that group. And then what you're saying is exactly right. Different groups will have different, you know, kinds of media they bond over. And uh, a lot of the media that these friends quote are kind of this mainstream, uh, mostly American, you know, white English speaking media. 
So it would definitely vary based on group and just, you know, what kind of media they gravitate towards. So you have a ton of these pop culture media references from this group, and you conduct some interesting analysis about how they signal these references through things like changes in their intonation. Could you tell us a bit about what you found in terms of how they signal these references just phonetically, just the way that they speak in with things like intonation? Sure. Yeah. So, and this is really Nicole's area. And this is something that I really had to read up on and study a lot to analyze. But essentially, I wanted to show how when people make media references, how do we know that someone's making a media reference? Sort of how do they mark that in the conversation? And there's got to be some linguistic cue or signal there. So essentially, the main way people do this is they just add a little bit of stress or a particular intonation contour to the media reference that kind of makes it stand out. And this, you know, is often linked to the reference itself. Often the things we like to quote in reference, they are kind of marked themselves and they stand out and they're said in a particular way. Yeah, like, for instance, uh, a song is pretty obvious because you may just hum along with the melody or, you know, s sing the melody even if you're changing the words in your reference, right? Totally, yeah. Um, a song, you know, that one's pr that's pretty obvious. It's like if someone's singing, right, we generally don't just burst into song. So if someone is singing, you're like pretty sure they're referencing a song that is more widely known um, in most cases, not always. But yeah, in some of these other like catchphrases and things, they just have these unique intonation contours or some stress in a particular place, or maybe there's something interesting going on with pitch. And so people tend to reproduce that when they quote these references. I don't think I really understood what intertextuality was until I saw some of your examples. Can you tell us what it is and how it applies to the Oregon Trail before we hear a clip of your participants talking about it? Sure. So at a really basic level, you can just think about intertextuality as repetition. It's when we repeat any kind of text, and that could be a written or spoken text, but it could also be the melody of a song, for example. It's really just any kind of repetition. So in my study, there's an example where I'm at a diner with my partner. His pseudonym is Dave in the study. And we're telling our friend Alan a story from a recent camping trip that we went on that involved a river crossing and I was in a kayak and got flipped over and I hit my head really hard when I came up from the water. And so we're telling him about this kind of awful camping trip and he says, sounds like a bad Oregon Trail trip, referring to the video game, The Oregon Trail. So we'll hear him make that reference and some other uh, references will be made to that game as well by, I guess, my partner, Dave. And you'll just hear me kind of laughing as they tease me about this incident. Then I hit my head, felt kind of dizzy, <laughs> decided to go in the canoe. Sounds like a bad Oregon Trail trip. And then <laughs> something like Sylvia, that. Sylvia has a concussion. <laughs> She won't be she will be unable to collect food for the rest of the group, so you can only carry 100 pounds less. <laughs> so it's interesting how that joke isn't explained, but it seems to be well-received by the rest of the group. Can you tell the listeners how the friends in general rely on being in on the joke in these shared media references? Yeah, so in this case, you know, the Oregon Trail was this extremely popular video game played in schools all across North America in the early 90s. So all of these speakers and a lot of, you know, other friends and millennials have experience with this particular game where you're this 19th century wagon leader guiding a party of settlers on the Oregon Trail and, you know, these river crossings and injuries are part of the game. So here, it's just assumed, I guess you could say, that all these speakers have played this game. And when someone says, sounds like a bad Oregon Trail trip, we all 
know what that game is and we're able to pull other texts that are within that uh, game to quote it and kind of map it onto this real life experience. And it's a way for us to bond over it. You know, Alan wasn't even on that camping trip, but this is his way of getting involved in the conversation. And ultimately, we're all bonding as these millennial friends who have all played this game as children. There's a lot of solidarity there, but it's also sort of an expression of, oh, you're my people because we are, you know, all the same age and roughly from the same place and had this seemingly very specific, you know, educational experience as children, which links us together. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Sylvia, was this Oregon Trail conversation one of the things that inspired you to do this research in the first place? Yes, it was. Um, you know, initially, I had actually read this article by someone else, Ala Tavares, and she was looking at how a family would reference different TV shows and their conversations. And actually, on that camping trip, um, after we had had this awful day and a bunch of awful experiences, which are detailed in the book, I was thinking about that and thinking about what to write this uh, paper on that I had to write for a class. And I was like, you know, I really like that paper about TV and referencing TV shows, but my friends don't really watch a lot of TV. And I was like, they play video games, though. And I started thinking, have I recorded any conversations where they reference video games? And I quickly thought of one, which was a reference to the game Papers, Please, which is much less well-known, but it was a popular game at the time. And then, you know, a few weeks after that camping trip, I was just so lucky enough to record this conversation with the Oregon Trail reference. And kind of as it was happening, I was like really excited and trying not to freak out about it. But yeah, that's with those two examples that really launched the study. So we talked about video game references, but this is also one of the first books I've seen with the whole chapter devoted to memes. So what's going on with how these speakers and maybe millennials more broadly uh, use memes in their conversations? Yeah, so at the time of my study, you know, the primary form that memes had was kind of the classic image with text. Now I think memes are a lot more diverse than that. But these are the kind of memes that were being referenced by my speakers. And they were actually referencing memes that at that point were even from a couple years previously. So they weren't even the most cutting edge memes at the time that these speakers were referencing. But it could be that these, you know, memes just had time to like marinate in their minds and everyone had gotten really familiar with them by that point. So, yeah, it's just another form of media, you know, in addition to the books, movies, TV shows, video games, all these things. It was just a more recent media source to draw upon. And, you know, now I see people referencing TikToks. It's like we're constantly updating those references. I had a conversation with a couple of linguists once where I was saying that I was excited to see something that I thought was going to be dramatic. And I was like, I'm going to be in the back like Michael Jackson popcorn gif. And then we were trying to figure out, like, what's the frame? Like, can you just say Michael Jackson popcorn? Do you say Michael Jackson popcorn gif? Do you say Michael Jackson popcorn dot gif? So in the book, I feel like there's a lot of instances of people making that kind of a reference of the memes of the day, right? Yeah, there is one that that reminds me of. Uh, I think my partner, Dave, again, makes this one where he says uh, he references this I want to die dot JPEG. And that's actually how people would refer to this meme in discussion boards. They would just write, I want to die dot JPEG. And it's this image of this like dolphin. And there's like a, a dark kind of rainbow background behind the dolphin. And it just says in Comic Sans, I want to die. <laughs> but that's the way people would reference that is with the dot JPEG piece at the end. Dr. Sylvia Sierra, thank you for joining us today. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? 
I guess the only thing to share is that not only are these media references a lot of fun, but they're, they're a way that people, you know, bond in conversation. And one thing I show in my book is how people use them to smooth over awkward moments and talk. So it's a way when there's some kind of awkwardness or unpleasantness being talked about, like my camping trip incident, and especially if someone's excluded from that experience, these are a great way to bring everyone back together on the same page. So knowing that your listeners can be a little more aware of that and maybe use these a bit more intentionally to create new friendships, reinforce old ones, and just have a lot of fun. And uh, I just want to thank you both for having me on your show. It's been a lot of fun talking about this. Thank you. Thank you for those great insights. We really, really enjoyed it. After the break, it's time for some wordplay. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. Now it's the time in the show where we play with language. This time around, we have not one, but two special guests joining us for a wordplay quiz. Madison Malone-Kircher and Rachel Hampton are the hosts of the extremely entertaining Slate podcast, ICYMI, in case you missed it. Twice a week, every Wednesday and Saturday, Madison and Rachel dissect the latest in internet culture. Welcome to Spectacular Vernacular. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having us. Woo. We're delighted to have you on with us. I've been a devoted listener to ICYMI since the podcast launched last spring, and it's really been enlightening to me, I have to say. Uh, as a Gen Xer who can't always keep up with all the latest uh, online trends and memes and such, uh, I'm feeling very old right now as I say this, but uh, <laughs> just like that high-speed download feature that you do, I love it. That really gets me up to speed. Uh, I'm so glad that us talking really, really fast is entertaining <laughs> because we're always worried that no one understands what we're saying. Very validating after a lifetime of being chastised for talking too fast. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and we especially love it uh, when you take on internet language, whether you're talking about individual words like my favorite, chuggy, or my least favorite, woke, um, or about the African-American roots of internet slang, like on that Saturday Night Live sketch, Gen Z Hospital. I'd forgotten about that last one. Woo. <laughs> that goes back to, uh, yeah, an earlier episode. But even just recently, I was listening to uh, your explanation of what soft launch means these days. And I really appreciated that explanation. Could you give just like a capsule explanation of what how people are using the phrase soft launch? Soft launching is my favorite social media trend of the fall. And it is the term for when you don't want to post a picture of your new significant other on your Instagram grid. So you'll post like an Instagram story where you're out to dinner and it's a picture of your plate and your hands. And then there's a third hand that's clearly like your date. That's a soft launch. 
So kind of like a political trial balloon. Yes. <laughs> a bit. Yes, exactly. This is really good. So Nicole and I are involved in selecting uh, the word of the year for the American Dialect Society. And so we're trying to keep track of all the, the new words and phrases bubbling up. And, you know, Chogi is kind of an obvious one. But soft launch, I like that. Maybe we'll get that one nominated as well. Chugi wasn't real. Yeah, that's Sorry, the thing. This is the hell I'll die on. Chugi was not real. Chugi was a psyop. <laughs> no, but that's what I like about Chugi is like how far can we like do top down language change? Which is the answer is not very. <laughs> yeah, it's like how far can the New York Times push language? And the answer is not very far. <laughs> I mean, then again, here we are talking about Chugi. So I don't they they were successful on some level, I guess, right? A conversation for my therapist and not this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have a special quiz for you. Last time, we challenged fellow Slate podcaster Chris Melanfi, host of Hit Parade, to come up with song and album titles with the word emo hidden in them. So this time, you'll have your own discoveries to make, hidden internet abbreviations. Uh, we're going to give you a clip from a TikTok video, and you'll need to find the hidden abbreviation based on the clue that we're going to give you. I want the one where it's a Carly Rae Jepsen album. That sounds easier. <laughs> no, I immediately was like, wow, this is my moment to start singing Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> well, before we start, we have a question for you. Do the two of you want to collaborate and figure out the answers together? Or do you want to compete against each other to see who can get the answers the fastest? I feel like I already know Madison's answer and she wants to I compete. I want to compete. <laughs> I was going to be like, let's collab, but I already know, I know Madison wants to, <laughs> Madison always wants to fight. <laughs> so you're in it for the glory, I see. So after the countdown music has started, once you've figured it out, just say, got it. Uh, and we'll call on the person who says, got it first. Okay, let's try an example. So, you know, you can see how this works. Here's a clip from the TikTok account of People Magazine. And uh, much like your recent episode where you made uh, Emily Mariko's salmon rice bowl, this involves a celebrity recipe. But this time, the recipe is from Selena Gomez. Let's make Selena Gomez's spicy miso ramen. Okay, so you need to find a hidden abbreviation. And the clue is, it's used to bring things to people's attention that they may not have seen. The abbreviation can be found consecutively in the sentence, Let's make Selena Gomez's spicy miso ramen. Uh, wow, spicy this is really S-M-R-A-S-M-R, <laughs> that's not it. Uh, no, that's definitely um, not it. I'm going to use you thinking out loud to help me figure out what this is. Let's make Selena um, Gomez's nago Spicy miso ramen, and you're looking spicy. for the consecutive letters in spicy miso, for instance. Is there anything oh. hiding? I think oh, I got it. Oh, damn it, it. Rachel, I got it. Rachel, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I like Rachel got it first. Madison, <laughs> is it perhaps the title of our show? I see why am I. <laughs> it is indeed. Wow, that was hard. Hiding in spicy miso. I see why am I. I wish I had a pen. <laughs> One time um, we had to do a promo and I didn't know what it was before. And Ben was like, what's a word for something great? And I was like, oh my God, it's spectacular. He wants me to say spectacular. <laughs> so it's happened to me there was a moment in my head where I was like, it can't be that easy. It has to be harder well, than that. We wanted to start with that one, you know. So oh you, you, I'm, I'm one, one that An abbreviation you're very familiar with there. Uh, it was hiding in plain sight there in Spicy Miso. So now that you see what we're going for, here's another clip for you. This one was posted on TikTok by Daquan. 
In the video, there's text on the screen that says, this kid is really paying me $400 for a session. And then you see a kid at the mic delivering these unforgettable lyrics. Hey, ah, uh, kitty litter on the ground, sweep it up. The hidden abbreviation this time is a common sign-off in texting, and you can find it somewhere in kitty litter on the ground, sweep it up. K-I-T-T-Y-L-I-T-T-E-R-O-N-T. Are you going to spell all of this? G-R-O-U-N-T. Uh, oh, I think I got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do I just shout it out? <laughs> oh, I got it, oh, too. No, no. Oh, okay. Wait. Now, you, now you both have it. But yeah. Rachel, yeah. Rachel came in there first, so. <laughs> I mean, I might, I might be wrong. I think it's. So Madison's strategy was actually not a bad idea because she ended up saying it. Um, yeah, but Rachel, what what do you think the answer is? Is it TTYL? Yes, the TTYL <laughs> in kitty litter. Rachel, did, did you hear Madison spell it out? And you're like, oh, she just said TTYL. So. It was a little bit of that. Like it was her saying it. And then I was like, wow, wait, that 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 sounds like something. <laughs> Madison, you're you're helping me win here. You're welcome. <laughs> In the end, we teamed up. Next up, here is a clip from the TikTok account, Tom Likes Food. So Tom is is British, but here he's trying a famous Canadian fast food chain. Today, I'm going to be trying Tim Hortons for the first time. I've seen Tim Hortons all over TikTok and YouTube recently. It's basically a Canadian fast food restaurant. So we're going to go and try it. Okay, so we're looking for a hidden abbreviation that might preface a person's point of view. And it's hiding in... Today, I'm going to be trying Tim Hortons for the first time. Okay, look, I've already got it, but I'm going to give you some time to figure it out. But I will vamp about how good the Tim Hortons donuts are. Like, Dunkin' Donuts? Tim, they got nothing on Tim. They could never. <laughs> I mean, we oh. could say that a lot about a lot of things in Canada, but also... We've lost all of our ready. Boston listeners, by the way, now. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm so sorry to New England. <laughs> I think I got it. But yeah, I also but I... want Canada's socialized medicine. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, Madison, you got it right away. So why don't you tell us what it is? It is I-M-H-O. I-M-H-O is hiding in Tim Hortons. There you go. Well done. Okay. In my humble or honest opinion, depending on who you ask, it's a regional thing. Yeah, that's true. It's, it, it can go either ways. I think originally it was humble, but then uh, the other people interpreted it as honest. Um, so some uh, polysemy, as we say in linguistics. So finally, we're going to take you back to 2019, forever ago in internet time, when Visco girls were all the rage. This clip from Kooby Dooby Dooby Doo spoofs a stereotypical Visco girl, complete with her favorite verbal mannerisms and accoutrement. Yeah, this is a new hydro flask. Oh, you don't have one? Um, how do you make your friendship bracelets then? That's kind of weird. The hidden abbreviation this time is an expression of intense amusement, and it's hiding in the sentence, this is my new hydro flask. Oh, I think I got it. <laughs> how did you get that so fast? This is my new hydro flask, intense amusement. L, laughing. Uh, oh, I got it too. I got it too. I am intensely. Am- I, I oop. I also oop. <laughs> you have to say <laughs> in there too, somewhere. There you I go. similarly oop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You schooled me. 
Yeah. So, Rachel, what's the answer? Wait, I think I might have got it wrong. I thought it was the sound from Hydro Flask. Oh, it's not. Wow. Madison, what do you think it is? It's Raffle. It's Raffle. Wow. In Hydro Flask, there's an R-O-F-L or rolling on the floor laughing. Really throwing it back there. Well, well done to both of you. Uh, Rachel and Madison, thanks for coming on and playing our quiz. And I guess we're declaring this a tie since it ended up being two to two. So the friendship can stay intact. We haven't broken up your podcast. I mean, that was why we came on was to end the podcast, but now we have to keep making it. (laughs) Thank you for having us. I'm so sweaty. Thanks to you both. You were both great sports about this. And now we have a challenge for all of our listeners. Listen to this clip from a TikToker named Zion4 from Johannesburg, South Africa. It's from the popular genre of imagining people arriving at the gates of heaven. The angel is letting in those that she approves of. I like you. Go to heaven. Of course you like me. I'm your best friend. I like you. You can go to heaven. That's my goal. Then the angel doesn't let someone into heaven who only uses salt to season food, even though she's a nun and the devil doesn't want her either. It's complicated. It's amazing how much plot you can fit into a 20-second TikTok. But let's focus on that first part. I like you. Go to heaven. We're looking for an abbreviation that could introduce an alternative perspective, and it's hidden inside, I like you. Go to heaven. Think you've got it? Send your answer to us at spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. From the correct entries, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive a Slate Plus membership for one year. Or if you're already a Slate Plus member, you'll get a one-year extension on your subscription. And we may bring you on the show to face a new wordplay challenge. Once again, we're looking for an abbreviation that could introduce an alternative perspective. Hidden inside, I like you, go to heaven. Send your answer to spectacularslate.com with quiz in the subject line by midnight Eastern time on November 3rd. And we're very pleased to announce the winner of the contest from our October 12th episode. Jen from New Zealand figured out that the 1976 disco hit that has the word emo hidden in it twice is More, More, More by Andrea True, famously sampled by the group Len in their 1999 one-hit wonder, Steal My Sunshine. Congratulations, Jen. Thanks to Madison Malone-Kircher and Rachel Hampton for joining us. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there because it helps other listeners find the show. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and One Year. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash spectacular plus. And thanks again to Sylvia Sierra for being our guest this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis. June Thomas is senior managing producer. And Gabriel Roth is editorial director for Slate Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with more Spectacular Vernacular. Thanks for listening.